Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our show. We are super excited about today's guest. Her name is Allison Raskin, and she is not only an Anxiety Sister herself, but also a mental health advocate, New York Times bestselling author, a screenwriter, and podcast host whose YouTube channel called Just Between Us has had more than 160 million views. I'm just going to say it again. 160 million views. <laughs> Her third book came out in May, and it's called Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression, which is a really important topic that we haven't really tackled on the spin cycle. Megs, how come we haven't tackled this on the spin cycle yet? We are pretty much old married ladies, and so we've kind of forgotten some of that stuff that definitely happened to us. We've we've been married a long time. Yes. So. <laughs> Nothing can kill romance like a long marriage. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and, also, and also it feels like we're married to each other. So there's that. <laughs> we are. That's true. Anyway, if you are or have been in a romantic relationship, or if you're planning to be in one, this podcast is for you. Welcome, Allison. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so delighted you're here. We always start with asking our guests to share a bit of their own journey with our listeners, especially around their anxiety. When did it start? What kind of symptoms did you have? Did you know what it was? So for me, it's a lot of what I've been told because I don't actually have memories of it. But when I was four years old, so pretty young, I got strep throat. And we believe that that basically activated something called pandas in my brain. So my OCD came on um, shortly afterwards and it came on in full force. And so my parents were really proactive about it. They recognized right away that something was really wrong. And, you know, within a few weeks, I was actually in treatment and on medication, which was pretty rare considering it was 1994. So I don't have a frame of reference for my life without mental illness being a part of it. For those of you who don't know what PANDAS is it's basically certain illnesses, particularly strep throat, seems to activate OCD. And, and sometimes the people who have the strep throat, the kids that have strep throat, nobody even knows they're sick. So sometimes the strep throat's really obvious and sometimes it's not even very obvious, but it's definitely something that can activate OCD. And there's now more of a protocol to treat it with a lot of antibiotics and medicines, but it's more and more being commonly recognized, I would say. At the time, like the treatment with antibiotics wasn't really on the table. So it was more just like regular mental health treatment. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because if I had been given a bunch of antibiotics at the time, like, would I, my whole life be completely different or, you know, but I I believe that I have enough of a biological disposition to it that I think I probably would have gotten it at some point in my life with or without the strep. And then 
you know, maybe not to the same level of severity that it came on, but I, I don't think that if I hadn't had strep, I would be, you know, neurotypical. <laughs> right, right. It comes on with pandas. It also comes on very suddenly. Mm-hmm. So it's not a subtle start. Usually right. it's very sudden, sudden and fierce. And there's a lot of doctors that still don't know a lot about it. So I just like to put it out there to people. If you notice this behavior in your grandchildren or child or you know, the kids you're teaching that they have a sudden fierce OCD coming on, then that's one area to look at. Definitely. Yeah, there's not a lot of understanding about childhood mental illness. No. No. And they don't have to have a sore throat. They just have to have the presence of the streptococcal bacteria. That's what causes it. So that's why the child may or may not present as typical strep throat, even though that bacteria is there and, and wreaking havoc. When do you remember getting symptoms of anxiety or OCD? Like when was your first memories of that? I, I just, um, I guess it's always just been my perspective of the world because, you know, I have a really bad memory, so I don't remember a lot of my childhood, but I, I don't really have any firm memories of like existing in the world without it, I guess. And I think it definitely, you know, shaped my sense of self and like, you know, kind of growing up thinking something was really wrong with me and struggling socially, just struggling mentally. And, you know, but it's, it's also hard, right? Because I'm in such a better place now. I mean, I still have OCD, but, you know, I I've done a lot of work on myself and I have a lot of the other stuff under control. Um, And so it's this weird thing where it it feels like, you know, you heard about something horrible that happened to like your ancestor, but it was you. (laughs) Well, can I just a hat tip to your mom and dad, because the fact that they were able to catch it and get you the treatment that you needed. I know you said 1994, is that what you said? Just for some reference, when I was a five-year-old, it was 1972, and my parents did not know that my behavior was obsessive compulsive disorder. They did not know that I needed medication, and I didn't get that medication until I was 46. So I definitely salute your family and your caregivers for understanding that something was wrong and needed treatment. And I don't blame my parents because nobody in the seventies understood. And I also did a lot of hiding too. So I I didn't help them in that regard. (laughs) So what led you to write a book about romantic relationships? So, you know, I, my career sort of had a, had a strange trajectory where I sort of started off, I went to school for screenwriting. And so I very much just like envisioned myself as a, as a screenwriter. I wanted to be a TV comedy writer. Um, but then I ended up starting a YouTube channel that um, after working at BuzzFeed Video and, and uh, I guess I started before, but I, I was basically making content for the internet ever since I graduated from college. And, you know, the original intention with that content was comedy, but I ended up, you know, sharing more and more of myself. And when I would talk about my mental health struggles, you could tell that that was like something people were like really eager to hear about, you know, like even in 2014, 2015, people weren't talking about it the same level that like, luckily now we seem to be or moving towards. And the show that we had on YouTube would often kind of it started off as like kind of a fake advice show, but it kind of merged into real advice. So we would talk about dating a lot. We would talk about mental health a lot. And I just sort of saw that this space hadn't really been covered about the intersection between the two. And then I'd say in like 2019, I noticed like a real shift in myself where I had gotten to a place mentally 
where my ability to show up in romantic relationships was kind of drastically different than it had been before. And, you know, where I, I think it took me a long time to realize that maybe why I was so quote unquote bad at dating was actually more tied to my mental health struggles than my personality. And kind of having that individual breakthrough, I was like, well, this is an interesting story like this, you know, it's one great for me, but two also like kind of, you know, potentially could fill people with hope, could give people some tools about how I got to where I got to. And so the original conceit of the book was actually much more memoir based. But then I kind of realized that, you know, as valuable as sharing our own stories are, having a wider perspective is is even more valuable in most cases. And so I blew out the book and included a lot of expert interviews. You know, I, I kept the focus to OCD, anxiety and depression, because those are the um, disorders I have experience with. But I, you know, I've gotten some great feedback that it's, it's helpful for people who don't even have those. It's helpful for people with a wide range of issues. Um, it's helpful for friendships, not just romantic relationships. So I'm, I'm, I was really excited to hear that it was kind of resonating across the board, you know, whether or not you were, you know, diagnosed with these things. I, I mean, I can honestly say that this book is really helpful for anxiety sufferers in general, but completely applicable to every relationship, really, because a lot of the a lot of the building blocks that you put out there, I mean, they're true for every human connection, really. So I honestly think it's a great book for anyone to read, not just an anxiety sister. But I like that you focus on the fact and you say early on in the book, it's hard enough being an anxiety sufferer or having OCD or having to contend with the depression. You're already feeling like you're walking on shaky ground. And then when you try to navigate a romantic relationship, which is a hellacious prospect for <laughs> people it's it's that much harder so i did appreciate that perspective because i hadn't thought of it that way relationships and anxiety are definitely challenging and a lot of the questions that mags and i get on a daily basis have to do with how to navigate those relationships and so many anxiety sisters saying to us i'm going to be alone the rest of my life who's going to want to hang out with me you know with all my stuff and yeah. i just want to say that this book is really hopeful and very concrete it, it not only <laughs> makes you feel like it's possible that, and even probable that you will find relationships that you can get joy out of and, and cherish, but that your anxiety will not stop you from loving and being loved. So really, congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, I think that there's this sense that, you know, for those of us who've suffered um, with our mental health, that when it comes to romantic relationships, we should just sort of take what we can get. And I really wanted to burst that apart because like we everyone deserves to be in a fulfilling relationship that they actually want to be in um and and you know I also think that for a lot of us all this work that we've had to do on ourselves you can look at it as like oh I I have problems or you can look at it as I've done so much work on myself I kind of know how to be a good partner <laughs> I've, I've been to the dark side and back I made it back I I've, I've struggled with things I have empathy, I have understanding, I have a sense of self and, and those things can really translate to being able to show up in a great way for another person. That's so true. And it's interesting now, as you're talking, when I look back, Abs and I went to college together. And when I look back at both of our romantic relationships during college in particular, <laughs> I, I see how much they were really tainted or changed or just they really were a product of, of the anxiety that we were both struggling with. Um, 
And I still have to say that I see that sometimes in my own marriage, that we bring that positive piece and we we also bring our struggles. And so it's actually a really interesting topic. I just want to apologize to my college boyfriend for exhibiting stalker-like behaviors because I did not know I had OCD. And unfortunately, you were the recipient of my obsessive ruminations. So if you're out there and happen to be listening to this podcast, which I'm sure you're not, but if you are, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'd like to apologize to, to countless people I dated up until I was about 30. So <laughs> yes. Me yeah. too. I have apologies <laughs> to you as well. But it's so interesting because you write at one point, the longest relationship you'll ever have is the one you have with yourself. So make sure it's full of compassion, respect, and love. And I thought that, that was so beautiful because we talk a lot about self-compassion. Yeah, I mean, I think being really aware that dating for anybody is scary, right? Because you're being vulnerable, you're, you're putting yourself out there for rejection. But dating when you have mental health struggles is like, extra scary, right? Because for some of us, it can lead to self harm, it can lead to suicidal ideation, it can lead to active attempts, like there can be some real world consequences to somebody bringing you to a really dark place. So sort of like what I really focus on is if you can build up your own relationship with yourself and you can find a real foundation there, then dating isn't as inherently dangerous because other people can't knock you about in the same way Mm. because you're an anchor for yourself. And so that was a huge thing for me of like, you know, while I was writing this book, my fiance at the time walked out on me with almost no explanation. And if that had happened to me five years earlier, I don't know if I would have recovered. I don't know. I don't even know what that would have looked like for me, mm-hmm. but because I was in a stable enough place and I had a good enough relationship with myself while it was still like the worst thing that's ever happened and horrible and traumatic, it didn't mentally destroy me in the same way. Right. And so I just really like want to focus on it's not just like how we show up with when we're with the other person. It's like how we're also just showing up for ourselves so that, the you know, it's always vulnerable to give your heart to another person, but we can l- lessen the, the dangers of it. It, it. That's true. I mean, I think when we feel damaged too, when we identify as damaged, then what we accept in a relationship also tends to be very different because like you said, we, we hear from a lot of women of all ages who sort of feel like I'll take what I can get. Yeah. Unfortunately, especially in this culture, mental illness is thought of as a deficit. Yeah. And we internalize that as anxiety sufferers, as OCD sufferers, we internalize this neurodiversity and these disorders as well, I'm broken. And then you see everything that happens through that lens, right? Yeah. So like, even if the reason that your, your partner leaves is because of something that has nothing to do with you, it can be really difficult to, to see that and to not blame yourself and to not say, oh, well, I knew it. I knew I was unlovable. And this is just another example of, of that being proven true to me. Yes. And so being able to rewrite our framings of ourselves is so powerful. And I'm in school for psychology and and so much of it is like 
reality is always subjective. There is no objective reality for the most part. And so like, why not choose to believe kinder things about ourselves? Well, speaking of that thought, one of our favorite mantras is thoughts are not facts. Yes. And that plays a big role in managing all relationships. And you, you talk about it quite a bit in terms of romantic endeavors. Can you kind of expound on that a little bit in terms of how that from, from the cognitive behavioral approach, how that can help us navigate these relationships? I think there's so much power in just being able to say, okay, that's definitely a thought, but I don't know that that's true. <laughs> right. And one of the difficulties with anxiety is this deep, deep discomfort with uncertainty. And so a lot of times our minds would rather believe the worst than believe that we don't know. And I think that allowing yourself to live in a, in a place of, I, I don't know why they didn't call me after a second date. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they made it seem like they wanted a relationship and now they didn't. And so then when our brains start to provide us with those answers, being able to say, yeah, maybe, but I don't know that for sure. <laughs> right. Instead of like, believing these assumptions that we often make about other people. And like I said, those assumptions are often the most cutting, hurtful assumptions we could make for ourselves. Um, and so, you know, really focusing on like, okay, what do I do know? And what is my current reality? So, you know, following my, I like to call it the abandonment, you know, when my fiance walked out, like him not giving really concrete reasons for why meant that I could fill in the blanks, but like how I was going to fill in those blanks in a lot of ways would be all the things that I didn't like about myself, all of my greatest fears, all of the reasons I would worry that somebody would walk out on me, but being able to say, I'm never going to know, <laughs> like, I'm never going to know what happened because he didn't choose to tell me. And I can, I can exist in the world without knowing and tearing myself down in the process doesn't do anyone any good. And I also think with, with breakups in particular, we get into this rumination around what if thoughts of like, but what if I had done this differently? What if we had met at this time instead? What if I, you know, what if, what if, what if? And being able to say to yourself, like brain, I totally get why you're doing this. I know that you're trying to solve a problem, but the thing is you can't solve it because the thing already happened. <laughs> so we are, we are wasting time and energy on something that we just have to move on from. Um, and, and really, you know, like you said, in the CBT of it all being just so mindful of what thoughts are occupying your brain. And at a certain point being able to say like, stop, like my psychiatrist, you know, gave the great metaphor of sometimes just putting up a stop sign in your head mm -hmm. of like, Oh, we're done. We're not going down this road anymore, but thank you. <laughs> you know, Maggie would have, right. to have had a physical stop sign to hold up when I sat there in her dorm room crying for months on end about my college boyfriend leaving me and saying, yeah. what, well, what do you think he was thinking? <laughs> that was my favorite line. What do you think he's thinking? Uh-huh. And look, I definitely spent late nights with my mom doing the exact same thing. But I think for me, it was getting to a place of like, I formed a belief of what I think happened and I have no idea if that belief is true, but the belief that I decided to land on is one that doesn't 
doesn't mean that I'm unlovable. Doesn't mean I'll never find love again. Doesn't mean that I deserve to be treated that way. And so those beliefs serve me. And so I'm going to choose to believe those beliefs. (laughs) Absolutely. So let's talk about breakups. We've all had our hearts broken. Anxiety sufferers aren't necessarily on the most stable ground. So breakups can really be, they can really shake things up. We always talk about anxiety being, you know, any kind of anxiety disorder being like the cha-cha. It's a couple steps forward, a step back, a couple steps forward, another step back. You know, it's a dance. It's not all weight up recovery. There's relapses and, you know, progress, not perfection. So when we have something that shatters us like a breakup, it it can really exacerbate that cha-cha. So in the book, I like that you give equal attention to both dumping and being dumped. And so the first question I have for you is, which is worse? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's hard, right? Because I don't think enough credence is given to how hard it is to break up with somebody, especially if like you're somebody who's constantly worrying if you're a bad person, which I think a lot of anxiety sufferers go through, then the idea of hurting somebody else, it's like kind of feels like a betrayal to who you are and how you want to exist in the world. But also like, you have to remember that the contract of being in a romantic relationship means that might happen. That like, by agreeing to be in a romantic relationship, all parties are saying, I'm, I'm willing to risk getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of different than other relationships that we have, right? And so just acknowledging that they, in a way they have consented to this being the outcome. <laughs> and so that it's okay. And I, I think a lot of times, I also try to speak to how difficult it can be when someone is struggling with their mental health and you want to initiate the breakup and feeling like, but I'm all they have. I couldn't possibly leave them. I'll ruin their life. And, and just reiterating that they don't deserve a relationship where someone's just staying because they feel like they should stay. Like ultimately they want, they deserve to be with somebody who wants to be there too. And it's not a healthy dynamic to just be staying because you're worried about what will happen to them. But the the thing about being dumped is like, (laughs) it sucks. Uh, It sucks for a lot of reasons. One of which is is the loss of control, right? I mean, that was like what really threw me for a loop was, oh, this whole future that I had been building with this person is now gone. A unilateral decision upended my entire life. And that can be really disorienting and traumatic. And then you're also dealing with like the ickiness of rejection. And so- I really made a point to say, like, when somebody leaves you, there's like the two components, which is grief and rejection. Mm -hmm. And it is so much more helpful to, to, to focus on the grief and not the rejection to focus on this is a real loss. I'm going to miss this person. This person was my friend. This person took up a lot of my time. There's a significant sense of loss, but to focus on the rejection it's just poking a wound. You don't really learn anything from focusing on the rejection, unless like you really did things in that relationship that you shouldn't have done. And so you really feel like, okay, I, I want to change my behavior moving forward. But if it's the kind of thing where like, you didn't do anything wrong, just wasn't right, or they weren't ready, or you've done that self work already, focusing on the rejection is just going to harm you. And it, and it, and instead, just like almost view it as a, as a death more than anything. And, and of course, that's going to be upsetting. But, you know, one of my favorite things in the book was um, a, a therapist I interviewed said, you know, this is a conception that like time heals all, all wounds, but time won't heal a wound if you're still actively 
doing all the old stuff. <laughs> like if you're still checking in on this person every single day, if all you're doing is thinking about them, if you refuse to date anyone else, like you have to actively heal. So active healing plus time can help you. Social move media forward. stalking no good. <laughs> I'm, I'm against it. I'll say that. I know some people can handle it and they can do a, a check in here and there. But for me and, and the way that I am, I know that it's just better for me to just not even in, engage with that at all. I don't know if somebody with OCD can really check in here and there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually think for a lot of anxiety sisters, a lot of people that I've talked to, the breakup, the rejection is so much around that sense of abandonment because sometimes it's not just a rejection, it's really deep seated. And so sometimes it's a really good vehicle to say like, okay, what has happened for me? That's past just this relationship. Definitely. And that's, you know, that's why self-awareness is actually like a really helpful tool sometimes with this stuff. Because if you can say, oh, this isn't this person, it's what they're triggering in me. Yeah. Because a lot of times, you know, it, it can feel like, oh, if I'm this it must be because this person was that special when in reality it's I'm this hurt because this is reminding me of this and that and this and this other thing and it's all compounding for me it's not that this one person is is this capable of hurting me this deeply because of some value they have yes absolutely you point out very clearly in your book that any kind of emotional or physical abuse should never be considered overthinking or you should never overlook that. But mm -hmm. lots of anxiety sisters really struggle with identifying what is abusive in their relationship. Some of it is because we tend to blame ourselves for our disorders or to denigrate ourselves and maybe not feel as worthy as we should. Uh, but for all kinds of reasons, you know, I, I've noticed that a lot of anxiety sisters struggle with that. It, it is such a difficult thing to, to deal with. I think there's also a difference between toxicity that's, that's created between a dynamic between two people and abuse. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a licensed therapist. I, I, but I, I do have a sense of understanding that sometimes it can be really helpful to bring in a third party. So, you know, if you are not, if you don't know if what they're doing counts as abuse, being able to say to a trusted friend or confidant, you know, somebody who you really believe has your best interests at heart saying like, what does this feel like to you? I think that can be really helpful, but there can be a sense of like, I can't claim a certain word with anxiety, right? Like my situation is not bad enough to claim that I'm suffering from abuse. So I think for people who feel really uncomfortable you know, using the word abusive, kind of releasing yourself from that and just saying, is this relationship serving me? Mm -hmm. And if it is not serving me, then I shouldn't be in it. Because I think sometimes those big words can feel like I, I'm not someone who could possibly have ownership over that. Mm -hmm. And you talk about healthy anxiety as being your wisdom, right? That, mm -hmm. that you know, if you're in a relationship and there's something about it that's really making you anxious, just maybe be curious. What is my anxiety telling me? We, we don't trust it as anxiety sisters because our inner voice sometimes lies to us, right? Or it makes up these rules we have to follow. And, and so it's hard to know when to trust it. But, you know, sometimes your gut knows. 
And it's hard because it's like, well, sometimes my gut has absolutely no idea. So <laughs> I think, I think it's then it's getting to what is the content of the anxiety, right? So is the content that, Hey, my partner said that he'd call me around 3 PM and it's now 11 PM and he hasn't called. That's a real concern. Like that's somebody, you know, not following through on what they said. Um, or I don't really like that they flirt with other women in front of me all of the time. I've expressed that and they're still doing it. That's a real concern, you know, but when you get into things like, I don't know if I feel the way that I should feel when people are really in love, it's <laughs> like, you know, much more nebulous or like, will I be able to love them 30 years from now? That's like very future-based. And so that's like, a, you know, anything that's really future-based is another sign that maybe it's more just your relationship anxiety versus your healthy anxiety. But if it's based on real tangible things that are actively happening, then like you owe it to yourself to, to listen to that. Yeah. So what specifically can you do to help your romantic partner better understand your own mental health struggles. In other words, how can you help your partner be a supportive partner if you have if you have anxiety or OCD or depression? So again, that first step is the self-awareness, right? Because if you don't know how things manifest for you, it's going to be really difficult to explain it to another person. So really having an understanding of where you struggle what types of scenarios make you struggle, um, how you can best be cared for when you are in a bad place. You know, there's a debate about the, the virtue of having diagnosis at all. Um, but I think, you know, having these terms like anxiety, depression, OCD are, are helpful, but you can't just rely on, on the name of the disorder. You need to really get into the specifics of what it means for you because my OCD looks completely different than my best friend's OCD. And, and a thing that took me a really long time to understand was the importance of, of conveying the distress element. So it's not just when you do this, it makes me anxious. When you do this, it activates my OCD. It's really saying it causes me a lot of distress. And I'm not asking you to remove your shoes because I think you're disgusting. I'm asking you to remove your shoes because if you don't, I won't be able to be present and, and here with you because my mind will be fixating on the fact that you're wearing shoes in my house. <laughs> I always say they don't need to, to understand it, but they need to be empathetic. There's always that line too. I, I mean, I, I have panic disorder and there was always this really hard line with, with my now husband, which was on one hand, like I definitely wanted him to understand. And on the other hand, I knew for me that it was better if he did not indulge it too much. Mm -hmm. Um, because the more he indulged my panic, the worse I, I would get, you know what I mean? So it was like, yeah, you feel really bad, but we're, we're still going on that flight, you know, yeah. not pushing me to it, not like saying you have to do that, but kind of like being okay with, I'm going to get on the flight dry heaving all the way. And he's just going to have to sort of be okay with that, you know, and, and there's a real push pull between, oh, should we stay home or should I like, how do I manage this? Like, what do I do? I mean, it's really hard. And it's a line I walk all the time, right? Because with OCD, the best treatment is to never give in to the compulsions. But right. if my boyfriend never gave in to any of my compulsions, I would not enjoy any of my life and my home would not feel safe and I would be a mess, <laughs> you know? So it is like no, a balance. Hard. Um, I think that it can really help to have conversations in times of calm 
about what are the goals here? Like, are the goals here for you to continue to live your life? Because if that's the goal, then, then I feel more comfortable making sure we still got on the airplane, even though you're having a panic attack. And so then it's understanding that like, when we get on the plane, it's not that it's because they don't care about my panic attack. It's because they know that your goal is to get on the plane and they're going to help you achieve your goal. Yeah. (laughs) The reality is, is it's really hard to be in a relationship with somebody who is suffering and, and it is really hard to be a caretaker and it is really hard to know what to do. And so allowing your partner to have space and, and people that they can talk to where it's not disrespectful for your relationship, for them to go to somebody like, I don't know what to do, or this is really hard, or like, sometimes I get fed up. Those are all normal reactions. And I think that allowing the conversation to include those reactions instead of having our defenses go up so much. And I, I get why our defenses go up because we've probably been rejected for these things in the past. We've worked so hard to come to accept ourselves that the idea of somebody else not accepting us is so triggering, but like, Having someone say it's it's hard for me to know what to do when you're suffering isn't an attack on us. It's a part of figuring out how to cohabitate and live in partnership with somebody. Um, and I think that like really providing resources for the partner is something that can be really beneficial to the relationship instead of just focusing on the person who has, you know, the diagnosed disorder. I find that my husband needs tangible things that he can do. And so I've said to him, okay, so if I'm having a panic attack, I'm already really claustrophobic. So you don't want to hug me or touch me or wrap Mm -hmm. me in a blanket. Like in other words, I've given him very specific things. And I said, so Mm -hmm. as free as I can feel as unconstricted is going to help. So he can then look for ways to make me feel freer and or I say, you know, cooling me down is always a great thing. So he can then go in search of ice or something. In other words, I find that if I give him very specific things that he can busy himself doing, then he won't get himself too caught up in the stuff he can't do anything about, which is just, we have to sit with it and and let us go, but we have to ride the wave. And you did the work there to figure out what works for you, right? Like, I think there's this assumption that like our partners instinctively know what to do to help us. Why? Why would they know how to help us? We're completely different people with completely different backgrounds and needs and responses. And so I think it's the responsibility to, to say to your partner, hey, this is what I need in these moments. This is how you can best help me. And then you decide if this person is compatible with you, not based on if they came up with that on their own, but based on how they receive that information. Mm-hmm. Are they then able to actually do the things you told them to do? Or are they going to try to smother you in a blanket anyway because they saw a YouTube video that said that's a good idea? <laughs> you know. And, and as you said, we can't be mind readers. It's like my, nothing right. more calming to my husband than a weighted blanket. If mm-hmm. you put a weighted blanket on me, I will freak the heck out. <laughs> so I wouldn't expect him to know intuitively what to do to comfort me because having the same discomfort, his instinct would be to wrap me up in something. Exactly. So having those conversations is so important. And I also think it's important to be able to say to your partner, I, I know it's going to be weird for you, but don't let this ruin your day. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm having a freak out. I'm in this spiral. And I know you love me and you don't need to come down the spiral with me. (laughs) Being able to detach yourself a bit is actually really useful. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's really great to take a break, a time out and say, you know what? I'm spinning right now. I'm only gonna suck you into this vortex. Get out while you can. <laughs> go get right. Car and go get us ice cream. <laughs> Come back. exactly In half an hour, and I will have spun myself out by then. But mm -hmm. but you know, it, it it is scary to tell people what you need. It is, and obviously, we want to get to a place where, unless we have, you know, we're in a really in a crisis or our, our symptoms are incredibly severe, the, the best line of defense is being able to self soothe. Um, and so really working on that and figuring out what can I do to help myself in these moments. Absolutely. Well, we could sit and chat with you all day. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> yeah, your book is so helpful. It's so much needed. And, you know, you're right. It's a very niche topic. There's not anything on that. And that's why we're just so thrilled and grateful that you chose to spend some time with us today. And and talk to our listeners about relationship anxiety and about managing romantic relationships when you have anxiety or depression or OCD or any number of, of mental health issues. So aside from book promo, what are you doing these days? You, I know you have a very active advocacy. You have a program, right? Yeah, so I have a, a mental health Instagram account called Emotional Support Lady. And then I also have a sub stack by the same name where I do weekly blogs. Um, and then I alternate between an advice column and a podcast all about all things mental health. And then I have my own weekly podcast um, with a co-host called Just Between Us that people can check out. And um, yeah, then I'm working on working on the next book. <laughs> oh, good for you. That's wonderful. We have been hanging out with Allison Raskin, author of the book, Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression. Thanks so much for being with us, Allison. We really, really appreciate what you're doing. We appreciate your advocacy. We're going to put links in the show notes to all of your various social media outlets and also your website, which has really great information and your podcast. And I hope you'll come back and join us again when the next book comes out. Oh, thank you. I'd be honored. Okay. Announcements. Max, what are we announcing? Well, the First thing we're announcing is our weekend with the Anxiety Sisters, which is on December 1st through December 4th. So that's a Thursday evening through lunchtime on Sunday. And it's going to be this really great weekend for people who really want to reset and refocus, maybe get some rest and learn how to manage anxiety. We purposely decided to do this workshop in between Thanksgiving and Christmas because it seems to be a time of year when people are really stressing and we get it. So come join us in Chester, Connecticut, which is about two hours from Manhattan. It's two hours from Boston. It's near Hartford. It's near Old Saybrook train station. It's a beautiful wooded conference center that we're staying in called the guest house. It's a, it's lovely. It's very private and small and everybody gets their own room and bathroom. And we're having a very small group, just 14 plus me and Mags. And these are our favorite thing. We have so much fun on these retreats. They're life-changing for us as well as for people who come. So if this is interesting to you, then go on our website and you can get more information. We have a packet of information right on the homepage or you can private message us through Facebook or Instagram, or you can email us. Our 
free monthly webinar series is back. We had our first one already in September and our next one is gonna be Tuesday, October 11th at 7 p.m. on Facebook Live. You can join our free community on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. You can also email us at absandmags at anxietysisters.com or direct message us on any social media channels and we will definitely respond. It might take us a few days because it's just the two of us, but we will absolutely get back to you. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please let us know by leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may not think those reviews matter, but they mean everything to us. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, Anxiety Sisters, do not go it alone. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.